Well, good morning again, everybody. We've got some volunteers coming around with some handouts. How does it feel to see faces instead of the back of the head of the person in front of you? <laughs> a little weird, a little good, though. try to do my best to <laughs> so you don't have to look at the back of my head the whole time. <laughs> okay. Can I have one too actually over here? So if you haven't uh, seen the title of this morning's message, either you, you may have seen it in the email uh, when Cindy emailed the bulletin. Maybe you already read it in the bulletin this morning. Maybe you're looking at it right now for the first time. It's kind of an interesting title, isn't it? It's a little bit of a mathematical equation. Jesus is greater than Christmas. And maybe you think, wait, what? That doesn't make any sense. How could that even be? Well, we're going to talk about it this morning and figure out how it could be. Of course, to say that Jesus is greater than Christmas, uh, what we mean by that is that he's infinitely greater than what this holiday or this celebration or this season has become on this planet. We celebrate Jesus at Christmas time, so it does seem a little contradictory. But we want to remind ourselves this morning that he's far greater than any celebration that we could have or holiday where we celebrate him. So um, that's kind of where I'm going with that concept. And I'm sure you've experienced many times at Christmas, uh, maybe on the night before, the day of, or just during the season where things don't always go as planned, or you find yourself very disappointed during this time that's supposed to be so happy and joyful. So a lot of times, you know, our relationships with our families are tense, and those can cause us to not always be so relaxed and joyful at Christmas time. Or maybe you're the parent trying to figure out what to buy for all of the kids or other family members, or what do we do for this? And Maybe you were the one that bought the present and then the morning I've realized, 
batteries not included, and now you can't actually play with that toy. Or maybe the toy breaks the day after, or two days later, the, it just sort of becomes lackluster, and that toy isn't even exciting. The one memory that I have uh, that kind of can bring about uh, these kinds of feelings, I was still a child, and my oldest sister was, I think, 12 or 13, so right at that age where you know, you're not necessarily getting toys anymore. And the one thing I do remember she got was an alarm clock. Outside of that, I don't remember. But she didn't get any toys, and she sort of had this moment once all the presents were open. I don't know if she was thinking this thought, but I'm not a kid anymore. And she sort of disappeared, and at some point we all said, you know, where's Wendy? Where did she go? And she was upstairs crying <laughs> because she realized I'm not a kid anymore. I don't get toys anymore. And maybe that uh, excitement of what Christmas is in our minds just sort of disappeared or died or, or whatever. So, most of us know that Jesus is the only gift that's going to bring lasting satisfaction at Christmas time. And not just. Uh, you know, physically satisfying, or even emotionally, but soul-satisfying. For, for the last few weeks, we've uh, sort of been talking, uh, Pastor Drew has been talking about um, the second Advent. We've kind of been looking forward to when Jesus comes again. We're going to rewind a little bit for uh, today's sermon and talk about his first Advent. What he came to do and what it means for us. We're actually going to be looking in the book of Hebrews. So you can turn there. If you're using a pew Bible, we're going to be looking at the first two chapters of Hebrews. And it's page 1187, if you are using that Bible. Hebrews maybe seems like an unlikely, unlikely place for a Christmas Eve message. Maybe your brain just instantly went to turn to Luke chapter 2. <laughs> Not today. So we're going to look at Hebrews chapter 1 and chapter 2, and I'm going to read both chapters so you can follow along as I read. Hebrews chapter 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son. 
today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they, speaking of angels right there, not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him, for a little while, lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation Perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. 
That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, likewise, partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. The word of the Lord. There's a lot there. So let's go back to the beginning and work through it. Chapter 1 says, Long ago, many times, many ways, God spoke to us how? The prophets. That's how God, for the most part, used to speak to his people. He would give a message to someone and then that person would deliver the message. But things changed, and they changed at Christmas. Jesus himself has descended and spoken to us. So that's the beginning of our outline, if you're going to follow along right there. Jesus himself has descended and spoken to us. So all throughout the New Testament, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, Micah, Zechariah, Malachi, all of those prophets actually spoke about Jesus. They foretold his coming. And also elsewhere in the, uh, in the Old Testament as well. In the Psalms, we even see at the beginning of Genesis, there's going to be one who will come, who will defeat Satan. So Jesus himself descends and brings us a message. If you look at verse... The end of verse 2, going through 3. We find out this is God's Son. He's the heir of all things. He created the world. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. So he is very, very different 
than those prophets that were speaking in the Old Testament, isn't he? So we have a comparison between the son and a messenger. The prophets were just delivering a message from God. This is the very son of God coming to deliver the message himself. And so the writer of Hebrews is actually reminding the people that are reading this letter, things have changed. Things aren't the way they used to be. So, these Jewish people were used to the old system. They were used to the Mosaic law. They were used to the priests being the intermediate between them and God. They were used to the sacrifices. We just finished a whole series on Leviticus about all the rules and the regulations, yet how those were all pointing to Jesus. They were important. They weren't a, these don't really matter because Jesus is coming later. These are important, these are important yet they're pointing to something greater who will come. And so now the rite of Hebrews is saying, that person has come. So no longer are we bound by the law and following all those regulations anymore because Jesus has come, Jesus himself. So we're not exactly sure why, for some reason, there was a distraction of angels to the people, of the, uh, the people that were receiving this letter, but for some reason, angels had sort of become more important than Jesus Christ himself. But it just goes to show that sometimes there are good things that get in the way of the most important thing. And that's what had happened here. So the writer of Hebrews wants his hearers to know, first off, that Jesus himself has descended and spoken to us. Long ago, it was the prophets. All that the people of Israel were used to was all pointing to him, and he had now come. But would they listen to him? That was the question. We know that when Jesus started teaching, many, many people were flocking to him. Huge crowds were coming and following him. Some of them were maybe interested in what miracle he would perform, or maybe he would say something that upset the apple cart, so to speak. We also know that Pharisees, the religious leaders, were sort of following him, but they were not too keen on the things that he was saying because they were offended by what he said. Let's flip back to Matthew chapter 21. Which is page 982. Many of the Jews were so 
filled with the Old Testament Mosaic law, all the sacrifices, that whole system, even though the prophets had spoken about one who would come, that many of them were still blind to the fact that the Son of God was right there, standing in front of them. So let's look at Matthew chapter 21. Jesus has come to Jerusalem finally. He comes into the temple and is appalled by what he sees there and ends up throwing tables over, driving out the people that were selling. We talked about that last week, two weeks ago. And right after that, he starts teaching and talking to the people. Some of the people standing there were the Pharisees, the religious leaders. And so he speaks in a few parables because he wants them to understand that they've missed the point. We're going to look at a parable in Matthew 21, starting in verse 33. And this is Jesus talking. He says, Hear another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, they being the people who were listening to what Jesus just asked, possibly even the Pharisees, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. They missed it. The Son of God was standing right there in front of them. 
They even knew many of the prophets who had come in the past, many of their words that Jesus would come, and they still missed it. So as we move on in Hebrews, first we learn that Jesus himself has descended and spoken to us. Now we learn that Jesus is not just another messenger. He is the message. He's not just another messenger. He is the message. At the end of that uh, passage in Matthew, it says that the Pharisees thought he was a prophet. They just assumed he's another one of the messengers. They didn't realize that he is the message. So as we move on from verses 5 all the way down through 14, the writer of Hebrews sort of says, so did God say all this about angels? And this or this, or when did he say this about an angel? Because this is what he said about his son. This is what he said about angels. He's making a comparison. Let's not get the two mixed up here. The messenger, or at least the prophets, they were delivering a message, but they weren't greater than the one about whom the message was. And so as we look at... Starting in verse 5, look at all the things that we see that God has said about Jesus. Verse 5, you are my son. I have begotten you. I am your father. A little bit down, further down, verse 8. He has a forever throne, a kingdom of uprightness. Verse 9, we see that he loves righteousness and he hates wickedness. Also, the end of verse 9, he's anointed. Verse 10, we see he is actually the maker of heaven and earth. Verses 11 and 12, we see that he's unchanging. He's everlasting. He's not going to wear out. Like those clothes you might get at Christmas time might last a year or two or three. Those clothes are going to wear out. But like a robe, he's going to roll up the heavens and the earth. And like a garment, they're going to be changed. But he stays the same. His years have no end. And then in verse 13, he's actually seated at the right hand of God. So we've got this huge list. These are all the things that we see about Jesus Christ. So what do we see about angels? Well, jump back up into verse 6. 6 and 7, we find out a little bit. 
he actually says, let God's angels worship Jesus. So it's not the other way around here. Even though he makes his angels, verse 7, winds and his ministers a flame of fire. Angels are very breathtaking. I can't say that from experience, but all the times that you see someone seeing an angel in scripture, either somebody falls down on their face or they're terrified. Maybe they hide their eyes. Angels do have a glory about them, but in comparison to Jesus, there is no comparison. You don't have to turn there if you don't want to, but at the end of Revelation, the very last chapter, John has been, John has seen all kinds of visions about what's going to happen in the end, and an angel is showing them to him. And so in Revelation 22, at the end of it all, I'll start reading in verse 6. And he, speaking of an angel, said to me, John, these words are trustworthy and true, and the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy in this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. If we've never seen an angel, we might maybe not connect as much with this example. You know, why would I ever worship an angel? Of course I see the difference between Jesus Christ and an angel. But we know that whoever the writer of Hebrews was writing to, they had gotten a little distracted They'd gotten caught up in something that had a kind of glory, but wasn't the ultimate glory. They had gotten caught up in the messenger instead of the true message. However, he's reminding us that Jesus is not just another messenger. He is the message. And Jesus accomplished what no other messenger could. He accomplished what no other messenger could. Moving down into chapter 2. You might notice I'm skipping over verses 1, 2, 3, 4, but we're not going to ignore those. We're going to come back to them later. So... Moving into chapter 2, starting in verse 5, down through 13, we learn that Jesus accomplished what no other messenger could. Now, 
Now, Jesus had a very specific task that God had given him to do. And it's interesting how in verse 7 of chapter 2 we see, you made him for a little while lower than the angels. So we've just got done learning that Jesus is far, far greater than any angel. Yet something happened at Christmas and subsequently after that too, of course, during all of Jesus' life. For a little while, he was actually made lower than the angels. Now, if you think too hard on that word, you might think that somehow Jesus was less than them for a while. That's not what we're saying. But Jesus took on human form. He was born as a baby, lived his life here on earth, and a word I remember from college, one of my professors using was, he veiled many, many, many of his attributes so that he could come and live on this earth. He didn't get rid of them, and for a while he stopped being God, but he veiled those and was able to come as a human. I don't know that we could fully wrap our minds around that and understand how that can even be, but that's what he did. Let's look again at verse uh, 9 of chapter 2. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. That's what he accomplished that no other messenger could do. Another messenger would have come, delivered the message, and maybe went away. Or maybe he stayed for a period of time and delivered many messages. But a prophet or an angel or some other messenger could never do what Jesus did. And in becoming human, he was made perfect through suffering And he tasted death for everyone. Let's keep going in verse 10. For it was fitting that he, speaking of God, for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. That word founder could also be translated as leader or even captain. He was made like one of us, and he led us all the way through his own uh, temptation and suffering and then death. He tasted death for us. Now, of course, we possibly might experience physical death on this earth. If Christ comes back before we die, we may not. But 
Jesus tasted also spiritual death somehow, which is another, how can that even be? We're not sure. Fully, we couldn't fully explain it in words and have everyone completely understand it. But he tasted death, that separation from God, so that we wouldn't have to. That's what he accomplished that no other messenger could. So, by becoming like one of us, here's what Jesus did. Now, looking toward the end of chapter 2, starting in verse 14. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. Jesus defeated Satan. What other messenger could have done that? What other angel could have done that? Another translation at the beginning of that says, he too shared in their humanity. You know, that should be one of the rich things that we can hold on to during this Christmas season is that Jesus shared in our humanity. We don't have a Savior who stayed far off or he stayed in heaven, did the work, but didn't come down and experience what we did. But in becoming like one of us, he was able to defeat the one who has the power of death. So even though we may physically die, we won't spiritually die if we've given our whole heart to him and fully trust in what he did when he was on the earth. Yeah. He also then rescues us from the fear of death. Um, in the ESV, it isn't worded exactly like this, but um, in the NIV, it says, that he came to free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. I'll read it again. To free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. And man, if you don't know Christ, I'm sure that's probably a big fear that you might have. What is going to happen to me when I die, after I die? Is there anything? Is it just nothing and that's the end? Most people probably at least have the thought on their back of their mind, you know, what if there is something after this death? What is it, what is it gonna be? I don't know. I know I'm in, I have absolutely no control over that. And very often what that produces is fear. People don't want to die not knowing what might happen after that. And because of that, it makes you a slave 
a slave to fear. And because Jesus defeated Satan, he tasted death, he can now rescue us from a constant fear of death. We don't have to be afraid anymore. Moving on. Verse 17, therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Not your everyday word right there. Propitiation. Some translations might have a made atonement for their sins. But that word is speaking of sort of two things kind of going on at once, where God's wrath toward us as sinners is being turned away. So God, if we've confessed our sins, repented, and turned away from living uh, a life for ourselves, and we turn to God, God's wrath isn't on us anymore. His wrath is on us because of our sin. It can't just be ignored, or we'll, we'll just kind of forgive that for now. God's wrath is coming on those who will ultimately reject him and say no to him. So because Jesus made a propitiation, that means God's wrath is now turned away and our sin is dealt with on Jesus. So the sin is ignored, the sin is dealt with, but it's through Jesus and his sacrifice on the cross. One commentary said it's averting the wrath of God by the offering of a gift, which I thought had a nice Christmas connection to it. Not that we always need to make these little connections, but of course at Christmas time we're talking about gifts given, you know, and we talk about how it's better to give than to receive. Jesus offered himself willingly. He wasn't forced to do that. He laid down his life, and now God's wrath can be averted from us. And we don't live in that constant fear of death. So he makes propitiation for our sin. Lastly, he helps us when we are tempted. Let's flip a couple pages, maybe just one page ahead, depending on your Bible, to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews 4, and I'm going to read 14 through 16. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one 
who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Again, the people hearing this letter are familiar with the old system of the priest is the one who I come to. The priest will make a sacrifice. I can't go directly to God, but I could go to the priest. I could say what I did or what has happened or whatever, confess the sin, and this is what is going to need to happen for this sin to be, for a time, atoned for until Jesus would come. But that priest very likely had no idea what had gone on, what that sin was. Maybe he'd never been in that, um, never been in that circumstance, couldn't relate in any way, but he performed the sacrifice, and then on they go. That's the old system. That's what they would have been used to. But now with Jesus, everything has changed. Jesus came down, and he suffered alongside of us. Now, of course, we know that even though Jesus was tempted in every way, Jesus never sinned. There's a book I read a couple years ago called Gentle and Lowly. Highly recommend it if you haven't read it. It's by a guy named Dane Ortland. One of the uh, ideas that he kind of fleshes out in that book is that Jesus actually suffered infinitely more than we could ever because his temptations never turned into sin. So it was, you know, we experience temptation, maybe we fight it for a while, and then we give in, and then we experience shame and guilt, and sometimes that can just like become the cycle in our lives of I'm tempted and I try to fight and then I give in, and that's how we know temptation. But Jesus didn't experience it that way. I'm going to read a little bit from that book. Jesus had zero sin, but he did experience everything else that it means to live as a real human being in this fallen world. The weakness of suffering, temptation, and every other kind of human limitation. The various high priests through Israel's history were sinfully weak. Jesus, the high priest, was sinlessly weak. Contrary to what we expect to be the case, therefore, the deeper into weakness and suffering and testing we go, the deeper Christ's solidarity is with us. As we go down into pain and anguish, we are actually descending ever deeper into Christ's very heart, not away from it. I tell you, that book, I had to put it down every five minutes and take two days to think about what I just read and then come back to it. So if you do pick it up, you might have to do the same. But think about the fact that Jesus was perfect and holy and could not sin and yet was constantly tempted. You know, when we're tempted and then we give in, 
it's almost like the temptation kind of just goes away. Maybe it comes back after a while, but can you imagine Jesus constantly being tempted his whole entire life and yet never giving in? That would wear a human being out, wouldn't it? It would definitely wear us out. We know what it's like to be tempted and to hold fast and not give in. But picture Jesus completely holy, without sin, constantly being tempted, yet not giving in. So he can help us when we're tempted. We can remember his life on earth, and we can be comforted by it. Jesus didn't, again, stand a ways back and tell us how we should live. He came deep down into it, alongside of us. So, we have a warning. It's going to be our final warning, and we're going to jump back up at the beginning of chapter 2 to see what that warning is. We passed over briefly, but this was sort of a summary statement, if you will. Let's read chapter 2, 1 through 4. Therefore, so in light of everything that we've just read, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable. And every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit, distributed according to his will. We must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. So just like the original hearers of this letter were being tempted to kind of get lost in less important things like angels or the Old Testament law, priests, sacrifices... Do we get lost in less important things as well? So what's the 2023, almost 2024 version for us? Where maybe we're kind of ignoring the obvious superiority in who we have and what we have in Jesus, and we're kind of settling for earthly wonder. We can't get lost. We can't get caught up in the things that aren't the most important thing. Those things only point us to the most important thing. And if you're anything like me, I need something far, far greater than just 
the wonder of the season or maybe the magic of the season or good cheer, even though those can be good things. Let's not lose sight of Jesus and who Jesus is and what Jesus did because it's sadly easy to lose sight of that and get caught up in the less important things. Jesus himself descended to this earth and he spoke to us. He's not just another messenger. He is the message. And he accomplished what no other messenger could And in fact, in becoming like one of us, he defeated Satan. Yeah. He rescues us from the fear of death. He made propitiation or atonement for our sin. God's wrath doesn't have to be on us because of our sin. It can be turned away and actually put on Jesus because of his sacrifice. And he helps us when we're tempted. He helps us not to get distracted from the main thing. So I pray that we would not get distracted. I pray that we would pay attention so that we wouldn't drift away. Man, there's so many things So many waves in this world that are just pushing at us. And we will drift away if we don't hold on to the most important thing. So let's pray together. Jesus, we are in awe of your gift. The gift of yourself. How even though you could have sent somebody else to deliver this message of salvation, you came down and delivered it and lived it yourself. And so during this season, where we're often distracted by good things that aren't the main thing. I pray that we would hold on to what we have in you so that we do not drift away. Thank you for coming down and suffering for being tempted, yet not sinning. And then tasting death for us so that we wouldn't have to. Maybe this Christmas season we need to see that and hear that for the very first time, even though we've heard it before, but we haven't truly heard it in our heart. So please, God, change our hearts so that we 
can see you for who you really are and be changed by you. And that we will worship you, especially in this season. Not the lesser things. Thank you so much for your word that can ground us and fortify us. May we always look to your word daily so that we can be grounded. I pray these things in your name. Amen.